We study billionaires, and this is episode 87 of The Investor's Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is The Investor's Podcast. They'll take complex things and make them seem insanely simple. They make your boring drive to work feel exhilarating. They give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Broderson. Hey, how's everybody doing out there? This is Preston Pish, and I'm your host for The Investor's Podcast. And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson, out in Denmark. And I played a different intro that time because when we were out at the Omaha shareholders meeting for uh, Berkshire Hathaway, I got talking with some of the the folks that listened to the show and they were kind of laughing at, at the intro and just talking about how they, they enjoyed the uh, personality that we had that recorded that. And I said, we actually have like five other recordings, but I just never really use any of the other ones and I can. And so uh, that was why I kind of mixed things up this morning when we started the show, just to kind of show people there's some other recordings that we did as well. but. Anyway, so as you probably have guessed, this episode is all about our attendance at the Berkshire Hathaway shareholders meeting. So this is going to be a fun conversation for Stig and I, because this year we had just a blast. I mean, it's kind of hard to even describe. Uh, the community was just so much fun. I mean, we have some fun people in this community and, and it's kind of hard because, you know, Stig and I just kind of sit and look at each other through Skype, record the show. And that's pretty much it. Then when we're done recording it, we just kind of upload the files, you know, into the internet and it's gone forever and we never really think about it ever again. So it was so much fun for us to go and meet some of the people from the community that have been listening to the show and kind of hearing their comments. And there's some wild ones out there. I'll tell you, we have some we have some wild folks in our crowd because uh Saturday night we did a pub crawl and we'll talk about that a little bit more. And man, did we have fun. So uh, what I'm gonna do is Stig, did you have any opening comments or anything you wanted to highlight from the meeting that just stood out in your mind and you have to get it off your chest before we start you know, going sequential through the, the weekend here? Well, my highlight is basically just how much fun it was. And Preston, you have to factor in that for me living in Denmark, it's like 24, 25 hours door to door to go to the event. And it might seem like a, a big investment to go there, but I definitely think it was worth it. And I really feel like I met some great people and I made some great friends over there. So I can't wait to get back uh, next year. We had so much fun with our community. It was a blast. Hey, so let's talk about the, the weekend here in order. So Friday night, we fly out to Omaha. I got in kind of late. I got in about an hour before our first event started, which we went out to a barbecue restaurant and... I don't know how many people showed up. We probably had 50, 50 or 60 people there the first night, if I had to guess off the top of my head. And we just had a great time just interacting with everyone. The community got to know everyone. One of the things that we did that I think was really beneficial is the people that signed up on the list, we shot out an email and said, hey, if you're coming, send us a picture and just kind of a brief bio about yourself. And then what we did is we turned it into like this digital flashcard deck if you've ever used Quizlet, maybe our younger crowd would kind of know what Quizlet is, but it's kind of like a digital flashcard deck for your smartphone. So people could see a picture. And then if you tap on the picture, then it'll flip over and it'll say the person's name and kind of their bio. So we did this. We sent this out to everyone that was attending the Omaha meeting so that you could learn everyone's name, their face, kind of what they've done in the past before you got there. So we we walk into the room and 
everyone knew everyone's name. We're all chatting because they had used the flashcards. I, we, we sent it out probably about 30 days in advance so people had time to learn it. So it was great. Everyone knew who they wanted to talk to, if there were similar business interests or whatever. And it really turned into this great networking opportunity for people to kind of really get to know each other. So we did that Friday night. We really had a good time. We said that, you know, the next night was going to be the pub crawl. So they needed to bring their A game and be ready. And they did. <laughs> we'll get into that in just a second. So when you go to Omaha, the, the thing that's a little bit difficult is if you want a good seat, you have to get there really early because, I mean, it's a madhouse. There's how many people? 30, 40,000 people, Stig? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, there's a lot of people that come out for this thing. So they have it at what's called the CenturyLink Conference. It's kind of like a it's a big sports indoor sports arena that houses, you know, 30 to 40,000 people and it's jam-packed. There's like no seats. So to get in there and get a seat, it's first come first serve. And something that they added this year is they had security measures that before you go in, you had to get scanned and before they'd open the doors and everyone just kind of ran in and you got <laughs> stompled if you were slow. Preston, I don't know if those scanners worked because it seemed like everyone that went through them, like everything was just beeping and people just kept going because they wanted the good seats. So No, you're right. And so it didn't help that. So we back to, we tell the community like, hey, if you want a good seat, this is the time we're going. It's a little bit embarrassing to even say the time, but we got there. What time did we get there? It's like 4.50 in the morning. Yeah. We, well, Preston, to be honest, we actually came in a little late. That is even more embarrassing. So let's put it this way. Our community got there at 4.50 and then we were lost on the road. It's probably more my fault than it was Jim's fault because uh, we had a group of people that were riding with us. Jim Harden, who listens to the show, he's a good friend. He came out the first time we went out there. Jim was driving. I was kind of navigating. We had about you know five GPSs that were taking us to a, a century link, but not the one where the meeting was at. Uh, so we got lost. One good thing was is when we were lost, They had a uh, Walmart that just happened to show up and it was pouring rain outside. So we're like, hey, let's just stop and get an umbrella because none of us had umbrellas. <laughs> so we run in, we get our umbrellas and we go on our way and we show up. We showed up probably like five ten in the morning. So our poor community was there. You know, we probably had 50 people plus standing in the rain out there before we arrived. So we apologize to, to everyone for being so late. But we got there and uh, we somehow were able to kind of finagle ourselves <laughs> into the line. And uh, Dave Buck's wife helped us out tremendously to get everyone corralled into the same spot in line. So we're there in line and everyone's, you know, we had enough people that had umbrellas. We kind of made like our triple canopy uh, umbrella layer. So everyone could kind of like walk from umbrella to umbrella, like underneath of this canopy that we kind of made of our 50 or 60 people that were there in the morning. And it was great because although they didn't open the doors, I think, what time did they open the doors? Seven o'clock, Stig? Yeah, I think I actually did it somewhat earlier this year, like half past six or something like that, which was really good because it was really pouring rain. Yeah, they opened them a little early. I think they felt really bad. I mean, it was it was like a torrential downpour outside. So everyone's there kind of networking again, even though it's like five in the morning and it's pouring down rain and we're all out there and we're just having a good time. And I know it doesn't sound like a good time, but it was. We actually uh, we were we were dry and having a good time chatting and we were there. We got in the, the doors open. We were just running down these halls and, you know, Stig and I had mapped out the the route to go to sit in a certain section 
that we wanted to sit in uh, from a previous meeting. So we went in and just kind of ran up these steps, went down another aisle, and then we were right in the section we wanted to be. And for the most part, everyone kind of got to sit together because we were so early in the line and kind of got into the the building. You know, oh man, we had great seats. It was phenomenal. So now for the part that probably everyone's actually interested in, and that's the meeting itself. And what Stig and I did, instead of giving our opinions on different points or whatever, we recorded five of the best questions that we kind of took away from the meeting. And what we're going to do is we're going to play those questions. And and these are questions from the audience to Warren Buffett. And we're going to listen to the question and then we're going to listen to Warren's response. And then we're going to stop the recording. And then Stig and I are going to kind of talk about what it is that he said and our thoughts on it. So one of the things that I want to tell you is before we play these questions, there's a lot of echo in this CenturyLink Center. So although I I wish we had a better quality sound that we can play for you, this is what it is just because of the environment in which we recorded this. But I think that the the content that you're going to hear is really important. So that's why we're going to continue to play this. Okay. So without further delay, here's the first question. Okay. Station two. Good afternoon, Mr. Buffett and Mr. Munger. I'm John Gorey from Iowa City, Iowa. When interest rates go from zero to negative in a country, how does that change the way that you value a company or a stock? Do you choose a high valuation because the discount rate is is low? Or on the other hand, do you choose a low valuation because the cash flow is likely to be poor? Well, going from zero to minus a half, there's really no different than going from four to three and a half. I mean, it, it, it has a different feel to it, obviously, if you, if you, if you uh, have to pay a half a point to somebody. But if you, if you have your yield or your base rate reduced by half a point, it's of some significance, but it isn't dramatic. What's dramatic is interest rates being where they are apparently. I mean, whether it's zero, plus a quarter, minus a quarter, plus a half, minus a half. We are dealing with a situation, essentially, very close to zero interest rates, and we have been for a long time and longer than I would have anticipated. The nature of it is that you'll pay more for a business uh, when interest rates are zero than if they were like 15% when Volcker was around, and, and and you can take that up and down the line. I mean, it, uh, we don't get too exact about it because it isn't that exact a science, but very cheap money makes me pay a little more for businesses than when money was at what we previously thought was normal rates and very tight money would cause me to pay somewhat less. I mean, we had a rule for 2,600 years that uh, Aesop lived around 600 BC, but he didn't happen to know what was BC, but you know, he can't know everything. And it was a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, but a bird in the hand now is worth about nine tenths of a bird in the bush. And in Europe, you know, it depends on how far out the bush is, but it keeps getting worth less as you go along. So these are very unusual times that way. And if you ask me whether I paid a little more for precision cash parts because interest rates are around zero than if they've been six percent, the answer is yes. I try not to pay too much more. But it has an effect. If interest rates continue at this rate for a long time, if you ever really start thinking something close to this is normal, that will have an enormous effect on asset values. 
It already has some effect. Yeah, but I don't think anybody really knows much about negative interest rates. We never had them before. And, and we never had periods of stasis like 20, except for the Great Depression. We, we didn't have things like happened in Japan. Great modern nation playing all monetary tricks, Keynesian tricks, stimulus tricks, mired in stasis for 25 years. And none of the great economists who studied this up to our children understand it either. But we just do the best we can. And they still don't understand it. No. Our advantage is that we know we don't understand it. <laughs> it's, really, it's interesting, though. I mean, we are. You know, it's, it's, it makes for an interesting movie. It, uh, and it does modestly affect what we pay for businesses. The, the question, I think, is such a profound question. And it gets to the heart of asset valuation whenever you're talking about interest rates. And when interest rates continue to push lower and lower, and now they're at zero, um, you heard Warren say that he paid a higher premium to own castaway parts because of the fact that interest rates are so low. And he he said that he paid a higher premium today than he would have if it was you know back whenever Paul Volcker had rates at 15%. This goes back to an idea when Stig and I had Colin Roche on the show. And one of the things that Colin and I were kind of debating back and forth, I said, you know, you go back to 1980, the reason that you had asset prices at such a lower multiple on the stock market was because interest rates were so high. And then as interest rates went down, that's why you're seeing a higher premium on asset values. That gets to exactly what Warren Buffett just explained there in that response that he provided. The other part to this that I think is really interesting is their opinion that negative interest rates have never happened before. And if you don't understand it, you're thinking about it correctly. That's that's their exact quote. And I find that really interesting. And I think it's their way of saying, hey, we have no idea how this is going to end. We have literally no idea how this is going to end because this is something we've never seen before. So you know, your guess is as good as ours. And I think if you're trying to come up with a model or, or say that you're going to invest a certain way because you know what's going to happen, they, they think that that approach is very concerning and you need to maybe be a little bit more open-minded as to how this might all play out. Uh, Stig, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on all this. Yeah, I really like the question too. And also because it's something that we discussed on the podcast before and now you're referring to Colin Roach and I think he was open to the same idea as Jeremy Siegel out there is is talking about that this might be a new normal, having interest rates so low, at least something that we will have for a long time. And perhaps that was along the same lines as Warren Buffett was talking about. Because what will happen when interest rates go up again? Well, clearly asset prices will drop and Warren Buffett knows that. So when he is saying that he is paying more for precision cash bar than he otherwise would, I think that's a really interesting indicator of how he's looking at macroeconomics. Perhaps he simply felt that his opportunity cost of holding too much cash was getting too expensive. We talked about this many times before. Do you really want to chase 4% returns right now? And you just have to relate yourself to, to Warren Buffett. I can see why he's doing what he's doing. He has so much cash and he has an, another understanding of this. But if you're new into investing, I would say perhaps you should just hold on to money and learn a lot more about the current environment before you simply start to, to invest. Because my main concern is that with negative interest rates, this will 
actually change the behavior of banks. And Warren Buffett, he's saying, well, going from 4 to 3.5, that's not that different than going from 0 to negative 0.5. I'm not so sure about that. I would be sad if banks would start to lend out money to people that were not creditworthy because they feel obligated to do so. And it is part of the mechanism why the rates are so low. It's because they want banks to start lending out money so we can have more growth. And I'm just thinking, so did we ever have a situation where we were lending out money to people that couldn't afford the assets that they were acquiring? Yes, that just happened before the great financial crisis, right? So you have people having mortgages that they have no chance paying and, and they, could, they were barely hanging on. And the hope was that the remortgage in high real estate prices, is it a bubble like that we're going to have over the next five or 10 years? Is that what we're hoping for with keeping interest rates so low or even negative? I think that's my main concern. I would love if Warren Buffett could address some of those concerns as well. So one of the things that I've noticed with Buffett is he really does not even like to broach the subject of what he thinks could potentially happen with all of this. He just stays way away from it. Now, Charlie Munger, on the other hand, has recently, and I mean in the last couple months, kind of come out and been a little bit more vocal than Buffett on what he thinks might go down here. And it was, I think, Monday morning after all of this, Munger was being interviewed and he really compared what's happening now in, in America to Japan in 1990. And Stig, we've been saying this for what, a year, more than a year, that that's kind of where we saw all the, the, the timing and everything. And so when Munger came out and said that on the following Monday, that he sees the, where the United States is right now as almost being in parallel to where Japan was at 1990, I was like, wow, that's awesome to really kind of hear that from a guy of his stature and his knowledge and to know that you know any opinion that Munger has is probably really closely tied to what Buffett's thinking as well. So then Munger said, you know, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if we kind of go into a bear market for 30 years or, you know, the next 30 years could be really difficult. And so when you think about a 30 year bear market, that idea is, is sounds crazy to a lot of people because all they all they know is that the market always goes up in the, in the long term. But here's something that I'll tell you. If you were a bond investor from 1940 to 1981, you were in a 40 year bear market. If you owned a bond that was a long-term bond called a 50-year or whatever from that time frame, or if you invested in bonds at all during that time frame, you lost money because interest rates were going up for 40 years. Then if you were a bond investor like Ray Dalio, for example, you know 60% of his portfolio was in bonds from 1981 until now. If you were in that market for the last, call it you know, 30 years or whatever, you were in a bull market for that entire period because interest rates had gone from, what was it, 16% in 1981 on the 10-year treasury to almost nothing now. That whole period, you're making money in the bond market. So now you got to understand in the stock market, it you know in Japan, perfect example, Japan's stock market from 1990 till really kind of now, they were in a bear market. It went down for, for nearly 25 years, 30 years. And that's something that could happen. People need to open their aperture to the idea of different arrays of possibilities here. And I think that they need to really be open-minded as to how all this could play out. And I don't, I don't want to necessarily spin this that it's all going to be negative and, and whatnot, but I think that that possibility really needs to be in people's mindset as they're thinking through some of this stuff. 
Yeah, I love that you refer to Charlemagne because what is really deliberating about Charlemagne compared to Warren Buffett, in my opinion at least, is that he's just so honest. It's really clear that Warren Buffett. And I love Warren Buffett. It's not like that. It's just very clear that he is very cautious about what he's saying. He don't want it to be misunderstood. Charlemagne doesn't care. And、uh, the interesting thing is that you would think that all these people, say forty thousand people, come to Omaha. They're all Warren Buffett fans, and they are. But I think they're even more Charlie Munger fans because they're so hardcore into value investing, and he is actually the one really saying things as they are. And、uh, I found that very、um, significant over there. I I completely agree with you one hundred percent. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting, from finding the best guests to the maintenance to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions. Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is an AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously. And the best part is that it's a hundred percent free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, "What is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet?" What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka dot com. That's M E Y K A dot com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience. And provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. Charlie is the one that really kind of makes the meeting worth going to, in my opinion, because he's the one who's hilarious. I mean, just hilarious with some of his comments. 
if Charlie wasn't there, you would not have the same experience. Guaranteed, you would not have the same experience. But okay, so enough about that one. Let's go to the next question. And we got some, I think we pulled some of the best questions of the weekend. There was some some really good ones and there were some really bad ones. Uh, there was a guy who stood up and he was talking about some parallel between Harry Potter and Berkshire. <laughs> the way it was, was kind of funny. It was more entertaining than anything, but okay. So let's go to the next question here. Yeah. The question is from Larry Lepowitz of Boston. The year end balance sheet for our manufacturing service and retailing operations shows total current assets of 28.6 billion. Of which, of which uh, cash equivalents are 6.8 billion. Meanwhile, total current liabilities are 12.7 billion, implying net working capital of 15.9 billion. It has become increasingly common for companies like Apple and Dell to finance their business via their suppliers, in some cases with negative working capital. Why is it necessary for these Berkshire businesses to have so much working capital, particularly so much cash? More generally, how do you think about efficiently managing the working capital of a business segment so large, sprawling, and decentralized? Yeah, well, we have access to the cash. So we don't, at present, it really doesn't make any difference whether we have it at certain subsidiaries or other subsidiaries. So we do not, we have access to cash. Pointed out the best, we'll never go below 20 billion of cash and clients and stay comfortably above it. But allowing for the preferred that's going to uh, drive times, we'll do again over 60 billion of consolidated cash. We don't really worry much about what pocket it's in. It's not, it's not making anything anyway at these levels. Now, if rates move higher, uh, we've actually got the mechanics in process to do sweep accounts. And so I would pay no attention to the particular cash that's being held in that category there. Uh, the cash in, in Berkshire Hathaway Energy, the cash in the railroad, we have independent levels that we don't guarantee their debt. They, they run with ample cash, and we would not look at sweeping that down to the minimum. But if you talk about 40 or 50 of our miscellaneous subsidiaries, we will go to a sweep account. Uh, when you're getting zero, it pretty much difference where you get zero. So I think the fellows overanalyze it a little bit, but I understand why he did. One of his ideas was why don't we imitate some of these other people? and pay our suppliers a lot more slowly, so we have more work to get. That's a big thing in business now, and last year, a Walmart, for example, went to almost all their suppliers, as I understand, and certainly the, the companies that we supply, and they basically had a list of half a dozen things that they wanted present suppliers to agree to, and one of those things was more extended terms. And each of our companies made their own decisions, but my guess is they got more extended terms from most of their suppliers, maybe a very high percentage of their suppliers. And they may have gone from, I don't, I don't remember the exact request, whether they went from 30 to 60 days or what it was, but they got a meaningful extension. So uh, you will, you know, in a couple of years or a year, takes time to implement, you'll see higher payables 
relative to sales at Walmart that you saw a year or two ago. And, you know, they are under a lot of pressure competing with Amazon and others. And that's one of the ways that they expressed it. And uh, I've seen it on other places. And it's conceivable that one of our subsidiaries might deem it wise to do it, but I don't think they will. I mean, I think that, that the pressure for cash in Berkshire is not that high, and I think that the pressure for, or the desire for great relations with suppliers is, would probably overcome in most of our managers' uh, minds any desire to start extending terms. Yeah, I think it's hard to do that brutally when you're rich and the supplier is a Thank you, the suppliers don't love And so I think there's something to be said for leaning over backward to have a win-win relationship with both suppliers and customers. Always. It's never been question for Okay, so for this one here, the thing that we were really trying to get at was just their discussion on what are they doing with their cash. And kind of, you've got all these competitors and they really kind of got into the Walmart, Amazon thing with talking about how much cash do they have on hand in order to kind of run their business. And the person was saying that they have a really like small, if not negative working capital. And that's really kind of getting to the cash flow that's, that's flowing through their, their company. And the person was saying, hey, Berkshire, you're sitting on literally like $70 billion of cash. Why... Why are you sitting on all that money? And they really didn't they really didn't answer that question as far as I'm <laughs> concerned. But I think that what was an interesting point that he was making was it's at 0%. I can't get yield anywhere. So why would I go doing anything fancy? I think that just basically having the liquidity is more powerful and more value if you will than doing anything else. And it's not necessarily just from that response because he kind of hit on that on some of the other responses through the through the uh, Q and A that morning, but that was my takeaway from the way he responded. And I think it might be in another question, so I don't want to jump the gun too much. But Charlie Munger makes a comment in one of the questions where he says, "You know, back in two thousand nine, it was really nice having all that liquidity, wasn't it?" And that's I think what they're really getting at with their the fact that they're sitting on so much cash and getting literally no yield. And this is something I think that's really important for people to think about. If you're sitting on seventy billion dollars, and let's just say, well, why doesn't he just go buy you know a thirty year bond at whatever percent yield, call it a two and a half to three percent yield on a thirty year federal bond? Well, think about it. This way, let's say interest rates do go up in the future, and we're just kind of dead wrong at, at the direction that all this is going. If he's sitting on, call it a $50 billion position in a 30-year treasury, he is going to get taken to the schoolhouse, and he's going to lose a lot of money in that position. So both Charlie and Warren are saying, we don't know what's going on with interest rates. We have no idea what's going to happen in the next five years with interest rates. So we're just more comfortable sitting on all this liquidity and waiting to see what happens and seeing what kind of cards are dealt. It's early. It's like a card game. It's early in the draw. They don't know what kind of cards are going to be coming their way, but they do have a big stack of chips sitting on the table that they are ready to play with if they do get dealt some good hands. So that's how I read it. And I'm curious to hear Stig's uh, opinion on this one. 
Yeah, I think it was really interesting to hear his discussion about cash as well, and and he was talking about a sweep account. If you're not completely familiar with that term, it's basically a combination of two or more accounts at a bank, where it's it's really useful of managing a steady cash flow between a cash account and to make scheduled payments, but it's also an investment account where the cash is able to accrue a higher return. But as Warren Buffett is saying, it's not really that important because the return you can get from having that is basically the same as just having cash. And he just wants the flexibility. I think one takeaway, especially if you're starting、um, analyzing companies, that really understanding what a negative networking capital is. So basically, you are looking at the cash flows coming in within the next 12 months, which is the current assets, and the cash flow going out the next 12 months, which is the current liabilities. And he's talking about how you can actually run a business with a negative networking capital. And it might not make any sense because how can you run a company when you have more cash going out than more? Money coming in, and basically, what a company like Walmart is doing is that since they get cash right away from the、uh, from the customers, and they can actually have the suppliers finance that whole system. Basically, they have money coming in, but it will take say thirty or sixty days before money coming out. So, say that they will take the hundred dollars and buy a fixed asset. Say, want to use it to open a new store, then suddenly you will have a negative networking capital. But you will actually have suppliers financing the growth of the company, and that was what this whole discussion was about. So, if you're starting out analyzing companies and you heard about, well, you want a a positive network capital or a higher current ratio than one, as often referred to, you know, generally that's a sign of health. But you have companies like Walmart, I think Apple was mentioned as well, Exxon Mobil is another example where it actually makes sense to have someone else finance your growth. So.、Um, I think for that it was an interesting discussion as well. You know, it's funny, Stig. I remember, oh man, what was it? Two or three years ago, you and I having discussions way before the forum. It's probably th- maybe even excess of three years ago. You and I having discussions about negative working capital with Walmart、um, and the current ratio being below one <laughs> on our forum, <laughs> like three or four years ago. I remember that. So let's go to the next one here. What do we got for the for the third question that Stig and I kind of picked out of the meeting? Low to low to negative interest rates is something that's been discussed a few times today. Mentioned its implications for return on flow. I was wondering how should shareholders value the twenty five percent of the flow that's been created by retrocessional reinsurance, where the business is booked at an underwriting loss and at times has、uh, adversely developed. Cliff brings up some of our business in the insurance business. We take with either the probability of of some underwriting loss in order to get to use the money for a very long period of time, and it would look under today's interest rates like we can't do much with that.、Uh, there's two answers to that. We don't think it, for the duration of the kind of contracts we have, we don't expect these rates, but we could be wrong. Uh, but the second one also is that that we do think that occasionally we will get chances, even in periods of low interest rates, to do things that are will produce quite a bit, of,、uh, very reasonable returns, and we're measuring it in the potential utility to us with our really pretty unusual flexibility. In respect to the deployment of, of funds and this long period 
one will have an opportunity perhaps to come up with one or two things that where we can deploy money at a rate that may be quite a bit higher than other people assume now the money can be deployed. Right. They're willing to pay a little money now to have a certainty of having a lot of money available in case something really attractive comes up in a quick, difficult time. It's an option cost. It's an option cost for him. And that option came in handy in 2008 9 I love Charlie Munger. <laughs> Did it ever. <laughs> So that what they're getting at here is, again, what we were talking about with their float. They've got all this cash that they're sitting on with their insurance company. And the, the guy, the guy's question, I think, is a really good question because he's saying you're booking your insurance contracts at a loss. And he said, when you're sitting there and you're looking at this large ca- pile of cash and you're not able to get any type of yield anywhere on the market and you're just getting zero percent, if you will. And maybe worse than that, and it is worse than that after you account for inflation, you know, aren't you guys concerned? And Buffett and Munger were kind of like, no, we're not concerned at all because we're sitting on so much of it. And I think that what they're really, that whole discussion was a discussion of liquidity. And it goes back to what we were saying in an earlier response. They value liquidity. And I think that that's something that so many investors miss is the power of having that war chest stacked with cash for when things do go bad. And, and Buffett said, he, he started off his response saying, we can make a, a very substantial, and he says, and he kind of like rephrased, he says, we can make a good return. And he was confident that he's going to have that opportunity soon. So that's how I read that. I think that there, there, it's a total discussion about liquidity. I think that one of the, the more interesting points with this is just, how difficult it's going to be for some insurance companies to be profitable in the future just because they're so dependent on going into some type of fixed income asset that will give them some yield on that float and all that cash that they're sitting on for the day that they have to pay out their their potential claims. And this is a huge issue. Negative interest rates, and this is where I think a lot of academics come off the rails, and they don't think about the third and fourth order effects. Well, when you take a, a deep dive into the insurance industry and you think about what negative interest rates and the implications that'll have for insurance companies, it is insane. It's horrible for insurance companies because they can't do anything with all that money to reinvest and keep their rates affordable and turn a profit. So this is a huge issue for them. Yeah, I think it was a really interesting discussion, especially because it was about insurance and was also about reinsurance. But basically, when Warren Buffett talks about reinsurance, it's him insuring other insurance companies. So it's basically the same procedure. And they were talking about the float. And basically, I think Warren Buffett is really the person that made float like a popular term in investing. Basically, that's when people pay up for their insurance, uh, when they pay the premiums, he have a chance to invest that money. And that was also how he grew the company. But one must also understand that he can't just collect, say, $100 billion in cash and then go in and buy stocks of IBM or whatever Warren Buffett would fancy. That's just not how it works. Float is composed of two things. It's the claim reserves and the premium reserves. And if you look at the claim reserves, that's the assets that set aside to satisfy all the claims that they're likely to incur of the current date. So there must be some kind of... The, the claims has to be matched with reserves that are set aside. So 
they can't just go out and buy stocks because stocks can drop in in price and in value. So usually they are obligated one way or the other to hold a lot of bonds. And that comes back to the thing that Preston was talking about before. So what do you do when you can't make any kind of return? So that's a problem for insurance companies. So basically, what I found was really interesting is that he's talking about those two pillars, or that was actually the person asking the question. You have underwriting, which is basically you coming up with the insurance, and then based on those premium, you can go in and reinvest it. So think about the current environment. Think about that you can only get, say, a 2% return. In that case, you need to have a nice profit on your underwriting. Say, on the other hand, that you could get a 10% risk-free return in the market, and that has been the case. In that situation, it might financially make sense to take a loss. So basically, you insure people you know you, you know it would cost you money because then you can go in and reinvest it at a higher risk-free rate. So a lot of great things to, uh, to dig into in this, in this question. I think what's really interesting in hearing Warren Buffett's answer. I have one quick uh, follow-up question for you, Preston. Given your background and how much you started Warren Buffett, have you ever personally considered going into insurance stocks? Yeah, I've owned some in the past. Absolutely. Did you know how to read the balance sheets? Because I've got to be completely honest. I looked several times at insurance companies. And I also owned one at one point in time. I found it so hard to read the balance sheets of insurance companies. Yep. I totally agree with you. So yeah, I, th- I think that whenever I was invested in them, I knew a whole lot less than what I, I, I feel like I know now. I think whenever I look at an insurance company right now, it comes down more to real rates, real interest rates. So when you look at real interest rates today, they're literally uh, slightly below zero. They're kind of in the negative territory here in the United States because in inflation, when you account for inflation and the nominal interest rate, when you combine those two together, that gives you the real rate. And I think that's what's important when you're talking about whether underwriters in an insurance company are underwriting at a profit or a loss. And I think that it's so incredibly important for the the CEO of the company who's running it to be able to kind of anticipate when that real rate becomes like right now it just it just recently turned negative they've got to be underwriting these things at a profit they can't be un- underwriting these things at a loss because they literally can't take the money anywhere to invest it with any kind of yield so that's where i think if you have a great manager like geico i mean the best in the business running geico so they understand that they are making very informed decisions i mean the only way to invest in geico is to own berkshire hathaway because it's a fully owned sub- operational subsidiary. But some of these other insurance companies, I didn't necessarily think about things that way, call it three or four years ago. I just didn't have the the knowledge at that point in time to to understand it in that in that light. But if I was going to do it today, that would be one of the main things that I would be looking at. Are they underwriting at a profit or a loss based off of real interest rates would probably be one of my main drivers. Yeah, I, I just find interesting, Preston, you just say, well, back when I didn't know as much, yes, I would own insurance companies. Now that I actually know what's happening, no way. <laughs> well, and I wouldn't even say that right now I know what, what's happening. That's you know, that's a bold <laughs> statement in itself. But no, I mean, I, I think you just got to be honest with yourself. I think when you look at things, there's absolutely, there's so many companies that I've owned that looking at it back in hindsight, the deals worked out well for me, but it probably wasn't necessarily all due to my astute knowledge of the business. It was probably more, more my luck on. Yeah, there was one of those bull markets where you were just making a profit and everyone else was making a profit because it was just going one way and you 
might be thinking that you are really smart at reading balance sheets of insurance companies and whatnot. Yeah. It yeah. goes back to my, my buddy, Brian Rutherford, who's the professor up at uh, West Point, just making a statement. You know, he had the cadet and, you know, the, <laughs> the cadet says, oh, in the last year I did a 10% return. And then Brian's immediate question was, well, what did the S&P 500 do? <laughs> oh, it, it it did a 12% return. Okay, well, you lost. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joints range of motion helping you move more freely prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of the joint chiropractic find out more today call 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com call right now 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. 
That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. So, all right, let's play another question here. We got two more. And this is uh, question number four. I work for the largest real estate investing social network online called biggerpockets.com. We're seeing investors starting to get concerned that the real estate market is a bit rocky, similar to the run of 2005, 6, and 7 that led to the crash in 2008. Warren, in 2012, you told Becky Quick that if you had a way to easily manage them, you'd buy 100,000 houses and rent them out. How do you feel about the real estate market today? Not as attractive as it was in 2012. <laughs> they, uh, you know, we're, we're not particularly better at predicting real estate markets than we are stock markets or interest rate markets. But and it's driven to some extent by these low interest rates. But there are certainly properties that are being sold at very, very low cap rates that strike me as having more potential for loss than gain. But again, if you can borrow money for very, very little. And you think you're getting into some very safe asset, 100 basis points or 150 basis points higher. There's a great temptation to do it. I think it's a mistake to do that, but I could be wrong. I, I don't see a nationwide bubble in, in residential real estate now uh, at all. Most of the country, you, you are not paying bubble prices. Uh, for residential real estate, but it's it's quite different than it was in in, in, in 2012, and I don't think the next time around the problem is going to be a real estate bubble. I think that it certainly was because, in a very large part, of what happened in 2008 and nine. But I don't I don't think it will be the replica of that. Charlie, nothing to add. Okay, so that was I. Th- I thought that was a really interesting question, and a huge shout out to our good friend Josh Dorkin because the person asking the question was from Bigger Pockets and his podcast. So, uh, Josh, I don't know if you you listen to our show, but you know it was great to hear one of your folks from uh, your audience there asking the question at the meeting. Well, I wanted to play this one because there's so many people out there that either own a house, own some form of real estate investment. And I just want people to be able to hear Buffett's response to the real estate question and what he thinks that's at right now. So I don't think he really had too much of an opinion other than, do I think real estate's way overpriced like it was back in 08? And his answer is no, I don't think so. I think that one of the things that it gets into like a really interesting discussion, just like stocks and just like any other financial asset, as interest rates, federal interest rates change, that's going to change the way the market views any asset price, whether it's real estate or, or stocks. So when you look at what form of interest rates really impact the real estate market, you're really talking about longer term interest rates. So it'd be like the 30 year bond. And when we look at where that's at, it still has a little bit of room to go lower if the federal government would want to push it lower. Whenever they did Operation Twist, this is uh, the the U.S. Fed doing monetary policy quantitative easing with what they called Operation Twist. The whole point of this was to drive down the long term interest rates of of like the thirty year bond. I think that during the next credit contraction, they're going to have to do something similar in order to keep 
long duration, long-term bonds, the 30-year treasury in check, and it's going to have to stay down. If that would start to come up and then that would start to go up, that's going to, you know, I think that's going to be very detrimental to real estate prices. That's my opinion. I am not an expert in real estate, but that's what I think that they're going to have to do. And I think that the Fed is going to do everything they can in order to keep that rate where it's at, if not drop it lower in order to keep, you know, asset prices in check. But um, I mean, you get into real estate's very local, you, you know, you from one city to the next, it changes tremendously. So we are not experts in real estate, but those are some of my thoughts on top of what Warren had said. Stig, I'm curious to see if you have any uh, further comments. Are you going to pull a Charlie Munger here? <laughs> yeah, I, I love when Charlie said nothing to add. He didn't want to just speak about nothing. He was, I think all his points was really concise. And whenever he started talking, I was paying much more attention was he was saying than, than compared to Warren Buffett, perhaps because Warren Buffett was speaking like 95% of the time. But I, I agree with you, Preston. I'm, I'm definitely not an expert in, in real estate either. I am concerned. I think real estate could be one of the asset classes where uh, you might see a, a bubble if the central banks still behave irresponsible. That would be my take. But I don't think we're in that territory yet. But clearly, if the need to hike rates, you'll probably see the real estate market, just as the as the stock uh, market taking a, a big dive. But no, let me pull a child and say nothing to add, mainly because I don't know. <laughs> now, I, I really do think that the, the, the critical variable moving forward with real estate is really kind of that long-term bond yield. If you do see that go up, I think that you could potentially see issues in real estate. But for the most part, I don't see the Fed allowing that to happen. So, uh, let's go ahead and uh, go to question number five, and here it comes. I just have a simple question for you. How would you explain uh, IBM's mobile? I'm not sure that's a simple question. <laughs> well, it has, it has certain strengths and, and certain weaknesses, and I, I don't think we want to get into giving an investment analysis of of any of the portfolio companies uh, that we own. I think I'd probably better leave it there, Charlie. Yeah, it's, it's obviously coping with the considerable change in the computing world. It's tempting something that's vague and interesting. God knows how it's going to work, obviously, or very well. I don't think Warren knows either. Now, find out whether the strengths are strengths. Yeah. But it's a field of love and those of people right? trying to get big in. <laughs> How bad was that response, Stig? How bad was that? Yeah, it was it was horrible. It was like, well, it has some good sides and some bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. When I heard this, I was like they're not even serious. These two are not even serious with this response. I I think they are licking their wounds on this IBM thing. And I think they're they're a little baffled at how this has been playing out. And you know, this is this is my takeaway with IBM. And I learned a lot through this as well because I lost a little bit of money on IBM. I definitely did not come out on top in that position. I had it for uh, I don't know, maybe a year. And then when they just continued, when their revenues just kept missing and missing, I was like, hey, I'm getting out of this thing. Like they do not have this under control. And when I was looking at their strategy, you know, their business model, I hate the fact that they're a service driven kind of model with a big premium on expertise. 
And then all of their competitors are just knocking the socks off of them by low margin type business. I just, you know, I got out. I was like, hey, this was not a good idea. I, I misread this and I got out. So these two continue to plug away and, you know, IBM continues to miss their revenues. How many years now? Five years? Yeah, almost since Buffett bought into them, I want to say. Well, yes, they need to come up with a response. Now, Buffett kind of pivoted. He said, I don't want to talk anything about the portfolio positions. What he meant by that is any company that we own that's a non-operational subsidiary, meaning we don't have a controlling vote, that's what he was referring to. Like, I don't want to make a comment on it because I might buy more or I might sell the position was really kind of what he was hinting at there. But having been to meetings in the past, they have talked about IBM a whole lot more than that. That was the weakest response I think I've ever seen. The person's question was a great question. What's their moat? And they've got tons of IP, but I think that their model is what's broke in that they're not going after Amazon and Google in the right direction as far as you know, these guys are going to tear them apart because they're trying to destroy the margin where IBM's trying to build their margin. And I think they've, they've got the wrong approach. Yeah. And Charles Munger, he, actually, he was asked the same question. I think it was last year or the year before. And back then he was talking about that IBM might be a company with many resources, but they had really mixed performance and they had difficulty growing revenue. And then he actually had this remark about it was really important that Berkshire Hathaway paid a very reasonable price to establish ownership in the position in the stock. Well, it wasn't a good answer. It was definitely a better answer. But I think it was clear to me, at least how I read them, that IBM is not Charlie Munger's pick. At least that's how I read it. Charlie Munger, he can't see how IBM can succeed. Clearly, Preston, I, we're not even a fraction of the same level as Charlie Munger. But I remember, Preston, we actually discussed IBM. Actually, um, I had a chance to pull up an old email you sent to me back at October, 20 October, 2014. What's that say? <laughs> the subject was IBM at 168. That's the only thing. <laughs> uh, no, but I remember around that time we discussed it and we were like, we really can't see how they can grow the revenue. I mean, it might just be us that were not tech savvy enough, but they had this, this idea that they want to expand to South America and then they would want to do something in the cloud. And to me, it wasn't... It didn't make a lot of sense. So a lot of good reasons why I didn't invest in IBM back then, but I just couldn't see how they could not just grow, but how they could just sustain the earnings that they were having. And um, I think if Warren Buffett asked Chalamanga, he would probably be saying the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And hey, they're, they're hanging in there. So it'll be interesting to see how this one plays out. And for a guy who says he doesn't invest in anything that he doesn't fully understand and really kind of stays away from technology stocks, Man, it'll be interesting to see what they say next year. But so those are the five questions that we pulled out of the meeting. There was obviously tons more. They ask questions just so you kind of understand. These questions go from what time do they start? Nine or 10 o'clock. And then they wrap it up probably around three o'clock with an hour break for lunch. So the questions just go on and on. And I mean, if you're a person who enjoyed listening to some of those responses, you would love the Berkshire meeting. If you were listening to those and you were like glazing over and falling asleep in your car, you probably might want to skip the Berkshire meeting because that's pretty much what the whole meeting's about is those kind of questions. We did this after we were done. We went to the Nebraska Furniture Mart. So if you've read any of Warren Buffett's biographies, there's this 
really awesome story about uh, Warren Buffett buying a furniture company from a lady named Rose Blumpkin. And so that's just like right down the street. How many miles away, Stig? Maybe five, ten miles from where we were at at the CenturyLink. Yeah, that was that was pretty uh, pretty close. So we go there. They had uh, like a couple different options for food. You could get some pizza. You could get a barbecue again. And so the the food was real cheap. I mean, we just went in there, kind of had some meals. We walked around the Nebraska Furniture Mart for people that had read the story about Rose Blumpkin. They could see it. It's just huge. If you've never been to a Nebraska Furniture Mart, they're just massive. So we walked around the store a little bit, kind of, you know, just the whole community just hanging out. It was so much fun. So after that, we had our premier event. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone, everyone in Omaha is going to these, you know, really fancy swanky steak dinners, having these big guest speakers come in. So Stig and I were like, you know what? Let's invert, baby. Let's do this completely opposite of everyone else. And let's do something that is not classy. Let's do something that is just gets down to the raw part of interaction and getting to know people. And so we had our pub crawl. So we go to uh, the old market in Omaha, which is this awesome area, a bunch of kind of bars and social settings. I'd say we had 60 people again, probably come out a couple different new faces, a couple old faces kind of left from Friday to Saturday. But in in total, we probably had 60 to 70 people that came out Saturday night. And, um, you know, we just started off at the first bar. Everyone kind of got one drink and started socializing, just having a good time. And um, we had it planned so that um, there was a specific time that we would move to the next bar. So this the story that this originated from. So I got this idea for these pub crawls whenever I was uh, an attack helicopter pilot stationed in South Korea. And what we did is we would stay at one bar for 45 minutes to an hour. And just so you know, we're not going to really be talking about investing for the rest of the show. It's more social and like funny stories. So if you don't want to hear the funny stories and you know, you guys can kind of turn it off and maybe go to another episode. But we're going to be talking about our fun times that we had out in Omaha for the rest of the episode. So I learned this trick when I was in Korea where we got on a pub crawl and I think we had our time down to like an hour at each bar and then literally GPS timed. Like the time was very important because in the last minute at the bar, what we would do is we'd start this slow clap and we'd just slowly build it. And, you know, if there was 30 or 40 people or whatever, we would just slowly start clapping and clapping and clapping and get louder and louder. And then we'd start chanting something and then everyone would just walk out the bar like right on the minute of whenever we were, our time slot was done for that particular bar and we go to the next location. We were, we're there in Omaha and everyone knew the slow clap was coming. So everyone's like checking their phone for what the GPS time was. It's like 5.59 and everyone's like looking, Preston, it's, it's 5.59. We've got to start the slow clap. And so we'd start the slow clap. We'd build it up. And then everyone, and we had like 60, 70 people all in this bar slow clapping. And then the people that were like eating that were there that weren't part of our group, they're like looking like, what is happening? Are these people going to like break out into a dance or something? Like, what is this? I think they thought it was like a flash mob or something that was going to put on YouTube. They probably thought we were going to do a flash mob. So we're there clapping and building up. Then everyone starts chanting TIP for the investors podcast, TIP, TIP. And then we like just left. And so what we were trying to do is just build this crowd of people through the night that would join our group and come out. But man, did we have fun. So we walk out the first bar and we walk down the street and I, I kind of coordinated it. So all the bars were within, you know, 
a couple, like a hundred feet of each other. It wasn't a long walk to the next location. And we did this from, I think we did maybe six bars, maybe even seven. I can't remember. But as people kind of got tired and wore out, they either stayed with us or left. And I think at the end of the night, it was, you know, one o'clock in the morning and we still had a good 20 people probably in our group. I mean, we had a lot of people that were still hanging around there at the end. But what a fun night. I mean, we had so much fun. And you know what was great was everyone kind of let their hair down. They really, they really started talking with each other. When we changed from one bar to the next, people kind of got dislocated from the group that they were talking to uh, before, and they kind of assembled themselves with maybe even a new group as we moved to the next bar. So it was a great setting for people to really get to know everyone that was there. And I mean, we just, we carried on and had a blast. I think people in Omaha, when they saw, you know, 70 people walking down the street going into, and then when we walked into the bar, when we walked into the next bar, 70 people just come through the door all at one time. And the bartender's like, what in the world is happening? (laughs) And we're coming in and we all know each other. I mean, it was just hilarious. That was our Saturday night. It was definitely so much fun. Sunday, we had another brunch, great setting, a bunch of pool tables, and they had a buffet. The food there was phenomenal and just really had a great time. And we got pictures for all this stuff. And so what we're going to do in the show notes of this episode We're going to have the uh, pictures of the event so you guys can kind of go in there and you can look at some of the different places that we went to and you can see us partying and carrying on and then pictures of us at the shareholders meeting. I'll tell you, folks, if you want to go to this event, we are going next year. We are going to do this again. And to be honest with you, we were so inspired by our community and had so much fun with our community. Stig and I have decided to stand up a live events tab on our website, and we want to do more events and more outreach with our community. So what we did is uh, if you go to the Investors Podcast, you go to the top level page, You know, we have this kind of our mission statement at the top where we say, number one, we like to have fun. Number two, we study billionaires and read all the books that they read. And then now it says number three, if you want to connect with us with live events, check out when we might be in your hometown. And if you click on that link for the hometown, you can see Stig's going to be holding some events over in Europe. I'm holding some events here in the US. In fact, I'm, I'm holding an event in Seoul, South Korea in June, I'm having an event down in Huntsville, Alabama in July. And then it's in, in September, I'm having an event in Baltimore. And then Stig, you were saying that you were going to hold an event over in Denmark. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. And the first event, that will be the first weekend of July, so the 2nd and 3rd of July. Perhaps we'll do that in my apartment, depending on how many people who show up. Other than that, we might just go out. Let's see what will happen. And then the first weekend of October, so that would be the 1st or the 2nd of October. And I'm going to host that in Seoul, South Korea. I'm going to relocate there in late July, so... I think it would be a great opportunity to uh, meet up and uh, if not just to network with me, definitely to network with the community. At least that was, I found, to be the main contributor to the trip going to Omaha this year. So I hope I'll see a lot of you guys over there. Yeah, I, that, I, I totally agree with you, Stig. I think that if you are going to come out for one of these events, what a networking opportunity. For us, I mean, I'm sitting there on Friday night having dinner with our community. And I'm sitting next to a good friend now. His name is Moss. He was the economic advisor to Nelson Mandela. I mean, those are the types of people that are are listening to the show and that we're getting to hang out with. I mean, what an honor. 
It was amazing. And the, the conversation was just phenomenal. So you never know who's going to come out to one of these, uh, these networking events. So that's the thing that I'll tell you is come out for this thing so you can talk to other people. And man, there's some su- really successful people in this community. And uh, they come out to these events. So even if you're if you're a college student, come out, get meet some people, learn some stuff. It's it's just a phenomenal event. And Stig and I just took so much away from this. And we have just really one person to thank for this, and that's you, our community. Thank you so much for everything that you guys do to make this possible to come out. We enjoyed your company far more than you could ever realize. And enjoyed this event because of people like you that are listening to the show and that came out. So lots of exciting things happening within our community. And we just highly encourage you, check out that tab. We might be in your hometown like next week. You never know. So look, keep looking at that. Please come out for these events because the more the merrier. It'll be a lot of fun. And we'll get dinner, just kind of go to a social setting and really kind of have a good time to interact with each other. All right. So kind of a long episode. Uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed the questions. Hopefully you guys enjoyed the stories. If there's anything we can do for you guys, hit us up on email. If you attended this Omaha meeting and you have some pictures that you would like to have put up on the site, please send those off to me and we'll get them added into the site. But really, that's all we have for you guys this week. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to The Investor's Podcast. To listen to more shows or access to the tools discussed on the show, be sure to visit www.theinvestorspodcast.com. Submit your questions or request a guest appearance to The Investor's Podcast by going to www.asktheinvestors.com. If your question is answered during the show, you will receive a free autographed copy of the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This material is copyrighted by the TIP Network and must have written approval before commercial application. 